Welcome to the Washdown Podcast, episode number 57. And this week our guest is David R. Struther. Now, those of you who don't know, David spent four years in the Marine Corps, six years as a firefighter, and now he is a therapist um, specializing in treatment for military and first responders, firefighters and cops. Um, he is the owner and lead clinician for the Valiant Mind, and he has been involved with some other programs in the past as well as director. Um, he brings a unique perspective to therapy for us in the first responder field, um, being as he has done it. Um, we have a great conversation, had a great time shooting it. Uh, Joey Clevenger came in to uh, guest host with me, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, Joey. Um, so, yeah, episode 57 with David R. Struther. It's a great episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Um, leave some comments, feedback, you know, click, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Um, share it with your friends. Uh, there's a lot of valuable information in this, in this episode. So yeah, here it is. Episode 57 with David R. Struther. So yeah. And then usually we just, we'll go until we're done. So okay. whenever, yeah. nah, I'm whenever, good. whenever you tap out, we're my, my name is good. Yeah. I'm okay. uh I'm done with my patience for that. Uh, got the schedule clear because I didn't know how long this would be. So yeah, I'm good. Well, I don't know. I think our longest podcast so far has been about two and a half hours, two forty five something like that. So, but that was with a cop, and she loved to talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how yeah. former firemen are going to yeah. be <laughs> unless we start talking politics and religion, mm-hmm. and then uh, oh, all bets are off. Yeah. <laughs> I need to get like a mock bell in here that simulates a getting a call. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just be like, yeah. we're done. Yeah. <laughs> Got to run. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, so David, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Joey, thanks for filling in. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, why don't we get started? I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, David. Well, first Jeremy, man, thank you guys for having me, you know, um, Anything I can do to help you guys out, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, my story is pretty simple. I mean, I guess it's classic in in this presentation. Local kid. Grew up here most of my life. My mom, you know, we transplanted to Dallas for a little bit during our Super Bowl fucking years. Of so course. I, so I hate Dallas with a passion, <laughs> you know, for those reasons. The worst time to be in Dallas when they were fucking running it. Um, we went there for a little bit. We, we lived over a single mom, you know, uh, had five children. My dad was kind of out there um, doing a lot of things he shouldn't have did. And I kind of grew up, let's say, a little bit more advanced than others. You know, I kind of always had awareness myself, but, you know, I had strong moral codes. So I was kind of able to manipulate my environment. Um, I grew up with a lot of things that I later on realized were traumatic. But at the time, I was just like, that's just how we all grew up. You know, it's like being poor. I didn't know I was poor until I was around rich people, right? Uh-huh. When you grow up around, you know, when there's like, you know, two bikes in the neighborhood, then that's two bikes in the neighborhood. When you go to a neighborhood where there's bikes everywhere, you start to say, oh, I should have a fucking bike. You know, so um, there were certain things in my life that kind of pushed me in certain ways. But probably the thing that had the most impact on me was as a youngster, I watched my mom go through a lot of abuse. And I, you know, would attempt to try to 
stopping at times and doing all that. And it created this very firm core in me of being a fucking protector. You know, it's no surprise to me that I was a Marine and a firefighter and a therapist. Those things were in me. But I, you know, before I became all that, I really just used to beat up bullies. Like that was kind of my thing. Like, you know, I felt like I would protect those who couldn't protect themselves. So as I got older, I kind of moved into that place, you know, uh, moved with my friends pretty early in life, you know, lived as a teenager with them. I, you know, interestingly enough, I was a high school dropout. You know, uh, a lot of people uh, think, because I got all these degrees and stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of people think I was an academic. I was always smart, but uh, what would happen is I would have a fight at one school and have it would travel, yeah. you know. So, yeah. like, you know, for the local people, you know, my, my high school history is Lincoln, East, Metro, Van Horn, and Central was the last school that the district allowed me to be in. And I got in a, <laughs> got in a fight with the whole football team then. So that was... <laughs> let, oh. Yeah, let's just say there was, a, so, a, there yeah. was an issue, right? Yeah. <laughs> just, just a little bit. Yeah, so. but, I mean, but it's, you know, it's funny you say that because not everybody who goes on and gets advanced degrees and stuff has finished high school. And it's just everybody takes a different path for their education. Absolutely. And, you know, what's what I found was, you know, one of the main reasons why I became a Marine was uh, I'm really big on my word. Right. You know, I don't know if that's a thing that's just been with me, but it's something that's important. Like if I give my word, I don't like to break promises. I don't promise my kids shit that I can't do on a pro. Like so uh, when I met my recruiter, you know, I was out of school at the time and, you know, he was like, hey, I'm, you know, are you going to, you know, go are you are you gonna go and i'm like absolutely well he didn't know that i had dropped out so he had called me you know a couple of like a month or two before uh we're supposed to be going out right you know he's checking the trap like he's yeah, like okay yeah i got yeah. one that's been waiting you know he's been simmering and delayed called, entry program yeah absolutely yeah. right absolutely <laughs> right so he's like okay you know he calls me and uh he i'll never forget staff start eating right he calls me and he's like you know <laughs> you ready to ship off? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I don't know how that's going to work since I'm not in school. Like, what do you mean not in school? I was like, you know, I had dropped out. And at this point, I was, like, working at Zales and stuff at Bannister. <laughs> like, I was just a little badass. I just thought, I, you know, I'm going to fucking Zales, like, in shorts and shit and a shirt, like, selling jewelry. I'm like, you know, just, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing it. He's like, man, you know, uh, I understand what you're saying, you know, and I understand that, but, you know, I just want you to understand how big commitments are, you know, and he was really shooting it straight with me. He's like, I'm not going to pressure anything like that, but if you do want to get in school, I'll help you. So I called him back, you know, and I said, you know what? Yeah, I do want to graduate. But at that time, like a month and a half had passed. So graduation's in two weeks, mm. right? So um, he ends up getting me in school through, that'd be some off-camera talk. Right? <laughs> 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 he gets me into school. And, you know, I end up graduating. But before the school would allow me to graduate, I had to actually test out of every subject. Like uh, there was this thing, which is funny, later on in my master's grind of working for the program. But there's this act called McKinney-Vento Act. And what they do is any kids that are homeless, they don't use your homelessness against you. Like you still get to do it, but you still have to pass classes. Yeah. So they set me in the school and they set me in the science room. And teachers would come in and give me finals. And I just knocked them out. 
So when I graduated, I graduated around a bunch of people who didn't know who the fuck I was. <laughs> I, they, they penciled me in when they called my name, right? I'm telling people, like, yeah, I've been here all year. They don't know who the fuck. I, I graduated a week. Like, you know, uh, I hurry up and bought my cap and gown and uh, put out some. It was uh, my best friend, uh, Abraham, my best friend, Chanel. My mom showed up and, like, two other people. That's the only thing there. And I walked across and um, pretty much... Right after I walked across, I called my recruiter and I said, okay, I'm ready. And uh, I was about to get in trouble for some other shit. So he was like, we got to get you out of here. I was, supposed to, <laughs> I, I was supposed to leave like in August. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I wasn't always a therapist, guys. I fucking, like, you know, come by this shit honestly. So he's like, we got to get you out of there. So the the my enlistment date is July 4th, 2000. Like, they put me on a plane on July 3rd. Fuck it. I'm up at the, you know, embassy waiting to get on, you know, do the mm-hmm. whole MEPS thing. Yep. And July 3rd, I'm heading to California. July 4th, I'm on the footsteps in MCRD, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. I become a Marine that day. And it was based on a promise I told him, you know, when I was seven, 17 years old, when I said, I want to do this. And I stuck to that. So that kind of started that path into there. Nice. Yeah. 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 So how long were you? Four years, man. Four years? I did I did my, my four and gone. It's funny because, you know, I went in open contract and uh, didn't have a job at all because, of course, how I just told you what's going on. Mm-hmm. But I had an incredibly high ASVAP. So I didn't know anything about that. So in boot camp, I'm getting meritorious promoted for being a god and everything. And I'll never forget this fucking guy. I'm in the head shed and this is Lance Corporal Johnson, right? He's looking at me. He's like, man, you want to be, uh, he's like, he's like, uh, doing the paperwork to sign for the promotion. He's like, I mean, you don't got a job. You came in open contract. Didn't even know what open contract was. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he's like, you came in open contract. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, man, let me look at your score. He looked at my score. He's like, what? You got a 96 overall. He's like, man, here, take this book out. Cause I was going to be a cook or a grunt starting off. Right. I didn't yeah. know what yeah. took the book out. And, uh, my first MOS I was a uh, tactical air operations module repairman, which is pretty much, it's this drop box they put down to uh, do pretty much air traffic control. They can put it anywhere and it drops down. You, you're deployed anywhere. You can do all okay, that. Okay, gotcha. Right, so I spliced fiber. I they sent me to school, 29 Palms, for a year to do all that. But it was all, once again, on someone just, he just happened to look at it and say, what? <laughs> yeah. like, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. So, you know, uh, I'm in school. I do all that. I pick my first uh, duty. I want to go overseas, so I go to Japan. Love it over there. You know, we're having fun. And then 9-11 happens, right? I went in 2000. When 9-11 happens, the world shifts for us all. And, you know, pretty much by uh, we went to Guam. So we were in Guam doing an exercise with the Navy. Um, and when 9-11 happened, we quickly got sent to Kandahar. So, you know, in my mind, I'm a kid from Kansas City. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to, at this point, don't know the Middle East very well, right? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. now now we can say all the stands, but back then, yeah. we got to remember, we didn't know what the yeah. stands yeah. were, right? <laughs> maybe you knew what Pakistan yeah, was, maybe, but you know, Afghanistan, I mean, it, unless you watch Rambo 3, yeah, you had no it, clue. No yeah, idea, yeah, and that yeah, didn't no take clue. the best, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm going, oh, man, another island, because I'm going outside. <laughs> I'm a Marine. There's yeah, got to be water yeah, somewhere. It has to be, right? There's no reason for me not to be next to water, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, we went from uh, Guam to Diego Garcia. 
and then from Diego Garcia, we were we were in country, and it was uh, a very uh, eye open and humbling experience to be out there. You know, a lot of shit happened, a lot of things happened. Um, I think that for me being young, probably the most interesting thing for me was the morality issue, right? I tell people all the time, you know, I got out the Marine Corps, not because it was hard, but because it was getting too easy. You know, being over there and seeing things, like doing things, putting M16s to the back of people's heads, you know, as you're walking around, forcing them to build your, you know, defenses and do, like, it starts to take a toll on your morality a bit. You start to look at mm-hmm. things, you start to be involved in things that you didn't want to, and certain things about me started to shift and I was aware of that, you know, even in the Marine Corps, I was getting in trouble for fighting all the time. You know, I'd always had a chip. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's, this it's is, fucking this, hilarious. This is man. a true story. <laughs> so, um, one day, you know, cause of course Marines, we didn't have shit. The army had the nice ass fucking tents and the air force had to choose. We had some GP fucking 100, like the old fucking civil war fucking. T- <laughs> so we set up this big ass tent city in the middle of fucking Kandahar. And uh, when we would have hot chow, we'd have to walk like a mile and a half to get to it, right? They were having hot chow this day. And the army, because they were trying to big dick, because they pretty much put their camp right next to ours. They said, well, nobody can walk through here. Well, this is like 19-year-old me. I'm not listening to that shit at all, right? (laughs) So so I'm like, fuck it. Not only am I walking through it, but I'm walking there, I'm talking shit. So it's me... (laughs) My boy Smith, it was a bunch of us, right? You know, and I'm walking through it, and they're like, I can't go through here. I can't do anything. I was like, I can do whatever the fuck I want, and bring your biggest person out here, right? I was like, I'm only going to whoop one ass one time, so I wanted to be the best ass that you guys got. I'm not going to be doing this shit all the time. My boy Smith, he'll 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 verify this story if you watch this podcast. My boy Smith, he, he was with me. They bring this big mother, country fan, but this mother is like 6'7", like fucking 275, big as shit, right? He comes out. I whoop his ass for about 15 minutes straight, right? <laughs> I go get uh, dinner or lunch. I think it was lunch because it was a little early. We come back, and I'm sitting down, and uh, they pull me. Uh, my gunny comes in. We need fucking talk to you, Strong. I'm like, what the fuck? Because there's no way they should know I fought. Yeah. So I'm already looking at my fucking friends like, who dying me out? Which one of you motherfuckers? <laughs> Y'all been with me the whole time. But how did, which one of you Who's mother- Yeah, Come on, Yeah, man. which one of you did it, right? So, <laughs> so they end up bringing me the head shit. Oh, I see everybody's fucking laughing. Because they didn't know it was me. So they got this big fucking guy sitting there with his eye, holding his eye with <laughs> his fucking chain of command. And they're all laughing. They're like, this guy did it? No, I was I was 155 pounds back then. I didn't have no muscles. They're like, this guy's the one who did it? Because <laughs> they were expecting, when they said a Marine beat, they were expecting some. <laughs> they were expecting the like, Yeah, like, they, yeah. yeah, exactly. They were expecting Drago to come through there. And I come through there. And they're like, they're like, uh, was I a corporal at the time? I might be a Lance Corporal. I think I was a Lance Corporal at the time. It was like, Lance Corporal Stroller, uh, did you have a, a physical altercation with this uh, soldier? I was like, I wouldn't call it an altercation. Like, that means a give and take. I pretty just whooped, pretty much whooped his ass <laughs> for 15 minutes, right? And they were like, well, we, you know, we need to keep, you know, some level of uh, continuity in here. We need to show brotherhood and all that. I was like, do you know why I did? I just run over there. I was like, they wouldn't allow us to walk through. So now my Marine Corps, they start getting, what do you mean they would? Because they didn't tell that story. They made it look like I was just running yeah. around rampant. Yeah. They're like, no. He was like, oh, really? 
So then the guy's like, well, we didn't mean it like that. We didn't. I was like, do you know why he came out? I was like, he wasn't even out there. I asked for the biggest guy. So everybody starts laughing at this guy. He feels like <laughs> shit. So they propose something. They say, well, we don't want the tension to be between us because there was NATO forces out there and everything. And we're like, we're all here. This is just a little mishap. Let's play a game. So they proposed playing a, a football game out there. It was the most brutal <laughs> fucking football. Like like six people got hurt in this. this oh yeah. Like it was worst it, idea ever. No yeah. pads. Yeah, you're probably people that medically retired at this point. Like <laughs> people were getting broken legs. It was great. Oh, now fast forward it to I I was at either Star or Valor, one of my programs. And a guy is reading a narrative talking about a football tournament that he was a part of like 10 years later in Afghanistan. I was like, I was like that's my fucking football. He's like, you're lying. I was like, no, that's my fu-. He's like, we still do it. I was like, oh, my God, let me tell you how it started. So, <laughs> they thought it was just some, like, inner fucking, you know, inner discipline. Like, yeah. no, I was like, no, that started from my ass woman. So it was a very weird <laughs> Army was, wouldn't let us go through their tent. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was a very weird way to get there. So no, I I I, I enjoyed my time with the core. Um, I did a lot of the things that I wanted to do while I was in there, and you know, quite honestly, I think I could have stayed in it if I didn't have the awareness that I had that I would change. You know, and that's something that to this day. I appreciate about the younger me. Like 20-year-old Dave was on a lot of bullshit. But one of the best decisions he made was he married married my wife and he pulled himself out of comp. He got away from that. Like those two things up because I treat people that would have been me. Yeah. I treat people. Like at that time, guys, you got to remember, it's 2002, early. T- we don't think we're going to be in war for 20 years. Like nobody's thinking that's yeah. what, what's going on. A couple on. months, we'll be done. Yeah, Absol- find the guy. Absolutely. That's it. We're, yeah. Like, this shit is one and done and we're good. Matter of fact, I was part of the first stop loss. Like, I spent a year there and they uh, involuntarily extended me because they didn't have a, they didn't have enough people to do what they were doing. And the Marine Corps so fucking foul. The way they involuntarily extended me was <laughs> they didn't let me know. So I picked orders. I thought I had, like, Colorado, which is, like, a dream place, right, yeah. for Marines, right? I'm like, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you did a hardship tour. You're getting Colorado. So I picked orders, like, two months before I was supposed to leave, right? Two months passed. I got my sea bag ready. I'm ready to get on a flight line. I'm like, yay. Gunny walks by. I had talked shit to all my friends. Some I was going home to fuck their wives. Just <laughs> the, the normal shit, right? But, you know, the shit you do, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, as you do, right? I done talked shit to everybody. Did all that. I'm on the flight line with the sea bag. My gunny walks by. He's like, Stro, what you doing? I'm like, Gunny, you know I'm leaving. It's like leaving. You got volunteer extended two months ago. Didn't nobody tell you? <laughs> oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> so now I gotta, That's because all that yeah, shit you talk. Now I got to come back, right? Everybody's waiting and looking. And I'm like, oh, my. Now they're ready to beat your ass. <laughs> oh, absolutely. A- absolutely, yeah. So it was just all types of little shit like that that happened. And the back, back five, six months of my deployment, all types of shit happened that just solidified, like, you know, okay, this is, this is real and this is where it's at. And, you know, I have an intense amount of respect, not just the normal people are serving. I have an intense amount of respect for those that were deployed because none of us were taught what that was going to feel like. You know, when you first get out there, think about it. Our seniors, if they if they had any experience, it was Desert Storm, which is a whole different type of war. Yeah. A lot of people like to say, oh, when it was a real war, we just had overwhelming force and we had a stand up army. Mm-hmm. Right. Guerrilla warfare and the stuff we were doing was totally different in that sense. So, like, 
I have so much respect for people because we all had to learn how to be out there in a way that nobody was going to teach you. No, no one told you what it would look like. You know, when people talk about Jody, like that's a real thing, you know. I saw, you know, people put guns to their heads. I saw, like there was a, so when I look at my mental health journey and becoming a, a therapist back then, I was seeing things and intervening in things where I'm like, we, you'll find a way out of this. Yeah. You know, you'll find a way out of this. This isn't going to end the way you think, but it was, you put a 19, 20 year old kid, you know, in there with, with weapons and pain. No one's teaching us how to deal with that. It's no different than when I became a firefighter. When I became a firefighter, all I thought about was the highs of the job. That's it. Nobody taught you about the lows of the job. No. Oh, like, no. Put your feelings in a box. You can have them back when you go home. I'll go even deeper than that. It's the people that are telling you that don't know what the fuck to do anyway. Yeah. Right? So it's like, who's who's going to tell me, okay, I get it. I'm going to run a call. I'm going to have to deal with death. I get that. Blood, guts, and all that, right? No one ever taught me about a sense of powerlessness, though. How many calls have you guys ran in your career where you left the house feeling bad for those kids and knowing you couldn't do anything about it? Yeah. yeah. Right? No just, one just the other day. No yeah. one teaches yeah. you that, right? Mm-hmm. That like so if you have a moral code and all that, you're in here and you feel bad for what it is. You feel like no one teaches you about that. Yeah. No one tells you that this is a component of your job is you're going to see people in unguarded spaces and your heart if you have one is going to be tested time and time again. You know, it's things like that with the military and fire that kind of created the person that sits here because I didn't just want to be someone who talked about shit. I wanted to not just talk about, I wanted to teach people the skills they need in those moments because when it's all said and done, a good word is yay, but the skill helps me move forward. And a lot of that was missing. So, you know, in the Marine Corps, when I left, I left in a place where I felt like I had accomplished what I had. I didn't walk away from it with regret. And I think that helped me with my transitions to other places. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely, you know, you definitely have those calls. I mean, shoot, when I was a volunteer, you know, it's just one of those things that my, it was like my first code going in and I'm like, I'm pumping chest, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing whatever I can with the very little training that I do have, mm-hmm. and you know, there's nothing I can nothing I can do. You know, we get to the point where we're, we had to call it, and you know, the family is just bawling. Just and, and, and that being my first code, you're like, I just wanted to go over. Like I, I, I my eyes started welling up. I was like, what do I, what do I do? Like, do I go over? And I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, you know, it's one of those things you got to just. Shrug it off, and we got a we got we got another call to go go to. You know, it just and it and over time, it just it will definitely just just put so much weight on your shoulders, and and that's where you know your programs are just amazing because being able whether it's you know we talked about it on on the episode a couple of weeks ago about how you know if you can go sooner, then why not? You know, you don't you don't have to wait for it to mentally mentally jack with you to. Yeah. To well, really go and talk to somebody, just go. Yeah, just go talk to somebody. And But that's the thing with people that are in these professions, and I know you could probably back this up, that typically we have the personality type where we're not going to go sooner rather than later. We're going to wait till the wheels fucking fall off and, and then wait some more. And not even know it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I think that a lot of times with service and identity professions, what happens is 
by the time you guys are forced to take a knee, there's resentment and anger that comes on because you're like, I should be able to do this. Not realizing that you actually tapped out 10 years ago. You just kept going, right? Mm -hmm. This is why, you know, firefighters, cops, you guys have from a, a mortality standpoint, one of the fucking worst retirement plans. And what I mean by that is I would hear people talk about retirement, getting their pension. I got five more years, right? Tell you the fucking day. Five years, three months, two days. It's a prison <laughs> sentence. 16 hours, Dude, right? I, I, yeah. Now watch this, right? How many of those people tell you an actual plan afterwards? It's always some amorphous abstract. I'm going to move here and do it's never because the goal becomes the finish line. So mm -hmm. that's like somebody training for a marathon and saying, I got to I, I got to get to 26.2. Great. But do you know how it fucking feels after the marathon? Do you know how hard it is to walk? Do you know how much recovery time you need? So what happens is you guys end up retiring and then you're going to a funeral within five years. Yeah. Yeah. If that long. Yeah. Right. See and it's all, like, see it all the time. And it's like, okay, to me, that's a travesty. You shouldn't give your life 20, 30 years helping us. And at the end of that, what you get is death. Like I want to hear part of the reason why I treat firefighters is just because I was a firefighter. I want to hear those stories because then they're passed down to the younger guys. Instead of just, I want to be a 20-year guy, it should be, no, no, I want to do what I need to do for 20 years, take care of this place, and I want to go off. I want to see the end of this. You know, you get to the end of your career, and you've given everything. Everything. Time, heart, soul, money. You've missed so much, and now you're like, I'm retired. Well, guess what? When you started the job, you didn't have a kid. Now you're done with the job and your kid is 26. You're not going to be able to put them on a fucking bike and recreate at 26. You teaching them how to ride a bike. Those are things that are lost. And that's a sacrifice you're making for us. At the end of it, there has to be something that's given back. And that's why culturally there has to be a shift. There has to be, I hear a lot where, oh, there's a stigma. There's a stigma. The stigma isn't mental health anymore. It's not mental health at all. I could grab any firefighter and say, give me 10 people you think are fucked up. They could do that, right? Oh, yeah. Right? The stigma isn't really mental health. The stigma is weakness. Yes. The stigma is I don't want to appear weak. And that's why it takes people like you, Jeremy. It takes other people to say there's strength in vulnerability. There's no weakness in vulnerability because the people that I care about the most in the world are the people that I'm the most vulnerable with. Those are the people that give me my strength. Those are the people that allow me to move through life. My children, my kids, my friends. So if you think about it, it's very easy to hide within a profession when all you have to do is pretend that you're fine. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you, we're call we're call we're we go to a call and 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 we have to have that basically that Superman persona. You know, we go in because they called us to make sure that we're the we're the tough guys to get the job done. And then you know when we go back from from the from the public you know we need to keep that persona but again we don't want to we don't want to seem vulnerable we don't want to we don't have want to show weakness and you know and a lot of the guys especially the younger guys where that are coming in are scared to show it to the older guys because we've you we've there's been that mentality where hey throw some dirt on it get back out there you know i've i've been doing this for 20 years you know but that's where we need to we we do need to change it it's it needs to be you know, have, have here's here's your list of people you can talk to. Here's your list of programs that are out there. Go and 
Go and get it done. But you said something super interesting, right? <clears throat> you said we take on a persona of Superman, right? Yeah. Well, then who does Superman call for help? Justice League. <laughs> they call, they call, most of them just leave getting their ass whooped, right? <laughs> Think about it. Think yeah. about it. When have you ever heard Superman screaming? Like, he can't. Like, yeah. that is literally a part of it. So what happens for a lot of people is they don't understand. I'll go a step further. Why does Superman even spend any time as Clark Kent? Why? I don't know. That's he's still Superman, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's not like he loses powers. He's still this big motherfucker that can destroy everything, <laughs> yeah. but he's at a desk pretending to do it, be a yeah. reporter. So it's not like he's pushing a button. Into, so why is he pretending that? Because he knows he needs to be vulnerable. Meaning, if I am Superman 24 hours a day, then as I'm trying to be with my wife, I'm going to hear people in China dying. Fuck, I got to go do that. Right. I'm going to fucking be trying to save someone in Tijuana while someone in Nebraska. I'm going to have that pressure all the time. But notice when he's Clark Kent, when he's truly Clark Kent, he has to activate that. He has to he, he has to he has time to be himself and be vulnerable because that pressure is off of him. So now he makes a choice. So anytime you see Clark Kent, it's a choice for him to use his powers. That's Superman never makes a choice. So now he's like, if I'm going to get dressed, I'm going to I'm going to take this off and go do that. Some of us have a Superman mentality, but not realizing that even Superman chose to be Clark Kent. He didn't even choose to be Superman all the time. And then when you are Superman in people's lives, because I can riff on comics and Uh, Jeremy knows I'm a a comic (laughs) fiction, Star Wars. I I can. But the other part of being Superman is you create the very nature of the people around you that need help. And what I mean by that is. How many times has Lois Lane fell off a building? Just about every comment. Yeah, every episode. Now now think about this, right? How many times has a regular person fell off a building? And if they fell (laughs) off it once, why would they ever go next to a building again? You know why she keep jumping off? Because she can scream Superman. So every fucking week, he try to eat noodles. Oh, fuck. How, why are you up on top of the bill? Because I'll be saved. There's a railing there. Right. Yeah, that's, like, like the, that's like the argument that Vision made in Avengers. Absolutely. It's the same exact thing. Yeah. So it's like you will you will inadvertently, in trying to be Superman, harden yourself, create the fucking same thing that's hurting you, and then you'll wonder why people can't see your pain because they think you're Superman. Because they mm-hmm. think you're Superman. So when you're, when you're coming in from work and pretending that everything's okay, right? The wife's going to look at you and be like, eh, I look like, but they can take it. They don't know how close you are, what's going on, because the one thing you don't want her to know is how much pain you're because you don't want to burden her. It, it it replicates itself over and over again. It keeps you stuck. It's like Mad Libs, though, for the, the spouse, because they, you know, they're getting bits and pieces, and then it's like they're going to fill in the blanks, whether you tell them what's going on or not. And, a, and who knows what they're going to put in those blanks. And a lot of times we're idiots. So we're trying to pretend that we're okay, but we're all mad. Well, oh, you bought fucking condensed milk. This is bullshit. Like, there's a problem with you right now. <laughs> like, like you're fucking cussing me out over condensed milk. Nothing's wrong. Like, yeah. I am fine. Yeah. <laughs> we, ha- we we had this conversation. I freaking, there was, you know, there was the, uh, I had this bad call. And anyways, um, it, there's one day. I freaking I come home, I'm mowing, I come home and I was like, man, I got body armors in the fridge. I'm I'm freaking I'm thirsty. It's hot as hell outside. I come home, no body armors in the fridge, but there I've got a full 24 package right, right. there next to it. And I right. was like, 
you're going to take them out, but you're not going to put them back in? And that was literally what <laughs> yeah, I started right. the argument it, about. It, it's, it's, I'm, I'm ready to divorce, all right? Like, was, like, man, and, and then, like, 15 minutes later, I was like, did I really just start a fucking argument over body armor? I was like, there's something fucked up right now. Like that, And that's, you know, it, I had to sit down and look at it like, Wow, I'm I'm a dick. Like this is ridiculous. Well, and that's where a lot of that and how I was reacting, like a lot of my treatment, I use self-disclosure as almost a scalpel, right? But a lot of the things that I I teach, the concepts I integrate into who I am and what I do. You know, I I teach an emotional management group that talks about people that believe they jump from 0 to 10. And it's like that's not psychologically possible, right? You're jumping from, you know, uh, a seven to a 10 because your ass is always on a seven and you think that's a fucking three. Most people aren't going to have the people in their life that can check them on that because some of you, unfortunately have met people while you're already a seven. Like some people are in relationships where the, the whole time they're in a relationship, they've been at a seven. So the person is adjusted to you having those little blowups, doing all that shit, not realizing you are a, a bubbling cauldron ready to explode. Some of us have children that don't even know who the fuck we are at a two. All they know is, let me be quiet because I don't want dad to get bad. Right? Let me adjust my life to your life because that's not a child's... Think about think about this, right? You come in the house pissed because the house is not clean. And by clean, it's messy because kids got shit everywhere. It's not dirty. You're not living in squalor, but you're mad. But you also work 50 fucking overtime shifts a year to pay for the shit that's on the ground. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. Right. Mm -hmm. When I was in my distress, I would get angry at my children about the very things I worked hard to do, not realizing that I want to come in the house and hear my kids laughing and playing. That's why the fuck I worked so hard that day. Right. I don't want to come into a damn mausoleum and everything's clean. They need to create those bonds and those memories from when me and their mother are gone. I know that I worked hard and it meant something if I hear my children laughing. But if I come in the house and the whole mood shifting, because now, and they used to do that in my home. I would hear my children playing and laughing at my wife. Then I'll walk my angry ass in the house. Shift. Mm. Shift. Now everybody's on. Let me make sure I don't piss daddy off. Don't let me make sure I don't piss David off mode. So how long did it take you to realize that? <sighs> I knew. Or let me rephrase the question. How long did it take you to admit that to yourself? There we go. That's a, that's a perfect <laughs> way to do that, right? It took me it took me about a strong two, three years to really admit that to myself. And it took me hurting the people that I love the most to smack me in the face with it. I think I would have stayed self-destructive in a lot of ways without really noticing it because part of when you're in a painful place is you want to push people away, right? You want to, you want to give everybody a reason not to be around you or you want to justify your actions, right? And when you are self-aware, what you start to do is stop lying to yourself, right? And what I had to put myself up against is my true code, which is if it's good or bad, I'm going to not lie to myself. And I realized that I was being a dick because I felt powerless. I felt scared. Like there were all these other things that were going on that were causing issues with me. And I didn't understand what was going on as it was happening, right? You know, I, I credit a lot of my change in my life. You know, I had uh, I had gotten uh, almost terminal cancer when I was like 27 years old. That helped me change so much because I had to look at mortality in a whole different way. And it really made me kind of 
view myself as okay, you actually want to live and you don't know how much longer you're going to live. So what's the quality of that life? What's the quality of that life? What what do you want it to look like? And I started to build and frame the guy that's here right now from there. But it took me, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I stayed married not because of me, but because my wife had more grace. Not not because I was special in some way. I, I'm literally my, my wife's ugly dog. Like, you know... <laughs> You know when somebody has an ugly dog, they know it's ugly, but they still put cute shit on it. It's oh, like yeah. they're, they're not, they're, you're not, they're not. The dog ain't tricking them. They're like, no, it's fucking ugly, but it's my ugly dog. I love, so I'm not tricking my wife. She knows that I'm fucking ridiculous. She knows I can be a hothead. She knows that you know these things can happen, and she's accepted that. When I was in my pain, my first thought is, why are you? You must be crazy if you with somebody like me, right? I want to attack her for instead of realizing I don't get to justify how she loves me. I don't get to look at that from that lens. And that helped me, you know, heal. And then I had to address all these things that I hadn't wanted to from childhood to, to Marine Corps to firefight, like all these different things I had to address in order to start to heal. And that process became okay. Now that you know what this is, what do you do with this? Well, my core value is helping people. So that's how those programs start to be. It's funny. When I became, when I got into psychology, I never wanted to work with adults at all. And I damn sure didn't want to work with firefighters, cops, or military (laughs) at all. I had no interest in it at all, right? I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to work with like teenage kids, little knuckleheads that just need some love and do all that. When I ended up, um, Leaving, leaving my department, I got a job at a area hospital that was in the urban core because I wanted to work with the quote unquote most difficult people, right? I wanted to get my skills sharp. I said, if I'm going to help people and I'm going to help kids, I'm going to do all that. I want to know how to treat a lot, trauma, all this stuff. I wanted to do all these things. I ended up uh, going there and they had a program that they had just started like a month or two before called the star program. Mm -hmm. It was for military. Well, I had a a military background and one day they needed somebody to pitch it. They were like, we were down as a therapist. Can someone fill in? They was like, Oh, well David, you know, can do it. And I'm just like, ah, fuck. Like (laughs) I don't want to be around. Cause I'm like, I already know what it's going to be. A bunch of fucking war stories going to trigger me or people going to be. And I went in there and the actual first group I taught is one of the most popular things I teach. The first thing I taught was one of the first things I learned that started to open up my mind, and it was trauma in the brain. I started teaching about the physiological changes that happen with trauma. Your hippocampus, your amygdala, your prefrontal cortex, and tell it, showing people that you're not just imagining these changes. Like, there's really things going on in your brain. Blew them away. They loved it. They came back the next day, and because uh, military people are fucking forceful, they were like, we're not listening to anybody but that guy. So they came back and they said, can you come over here and be a therapist for us? Within six months, I was the supervisor. Six months after that, I was a director. Nice. And I stayed there, created the STAR program, and did that until I moved it to my other program and created a whole new name and did all that with Valor. So that's kind of how that worked. But it was all, once again, something I wasn't looking for. It was just something that, you know, me and uh, 
me and religion don't have the best relationship. Me and God is fine, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I do believe in divine providence. I think that there are certain things that are supposed to happen because that's the way it was supposed to happen. You're supposed to meet certain people. You're supposed to do certain things. And the way I've always looked at my career is because I'm a very unorthodox therapist, all the people I'm supposed to treat, they needed to come to me to treat them, and I'm not going to change myself for it. Because the minute I do, they're not going to get better. The people I treat have such good bullshit detectors that if I got up there and I'm something different than who I really am, if I went up there and said, well, I'm going to challenge your cognitive distortions using several different treatment modalities, and I'm, they'll listen to it, it'll be polite, but they'll, they'll be like, ah. But if I'm up there and I'm like, hey, you're stupid and this is why. Let, <laughs> my type of people are listening like, oh, okay, well, uh, I'm well, stupid. And that's we've had that conversation multiple times on this podcast about cultural competency and knowing and, you know, with fire department, police department, military people, they all have kind of that same thing. You go to a normal therapist, they're not going to get it. And you might just get stuck there. I think, though, especially when you talk about cultural competency, the thing that I teach therapists all the time when, you know, they ask me to speak or teach how to deal with certain populations, it starts with you being authentic, Right. No matter how many ride-alongs someone does and all that, mm-hmm. you're not going to have the experience. You come in with humility and authenticity. Mm-hmm. That's how you learn. I've treated, I can't count how many sexual assault survivors. I've never been raped. But with humility and authenticity, I've learned about the sense of powerlessness. I've learned about because I can connect to those things. A lot of people say, oh, you need to be able to empathize. That's not how therapy should work. Sympathy and empathy are great, but therapy should be a level of relatability. You should be looking to relate to something. If I'm if I'm driving down the street and I see a dead dog, I'm gonna be like, oh man, that's rough. And then I can empathize that somebody may have lost their but that's not the same as me saying, Oh, I remember when I lost my dog. Right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people that do this, you know, I take them to task because sometimes they use you guys as a resume builder. Mm-hmm. Right? Hey, you know, I'm treating firefighters. Are you? Are they getting better? Are they fucking getting better, right? Or are you just listening to stories every week? You know, I I tell my patients all the time, even though they don't ever want to leave me, right? (laughs) Like, I want to be a seasonal therapist or maybe a two-season, right? I want to be in your life to help you with you. I almost want to be like Frosty the Snowman. You just see a fucking hat go through. (laughs) And just be like, you're stupid. And And then Frosty's off again. And you're like, okay. Will Frosty ever come back? Like, yeah, he'll be back sooner or later, all right? Like, I don't want to be, I don't believe in treating somebody for 20 years. I don't want to, I don't want to hear you talk about your problems for three, four years because that means I'm not doing my job. I shouldn't be able to eliminate any problem in your life. What I should be teaching you is how to manage it because yeah. that's the thing, right? Therapy is a verb. It's, it's, it's a skill set. It's something. See, my advice is going to be totally different than my therapy, right? Yeah. Young lady comes to me. You know, what do you guys come to me and say, you know what, man? I, this relationship's crazy. It's toxic. She's fucking, you know, going off. She spent all my money, fucking all my friends. The David and me might be like, hey, why the fuck are you in there? Hey, get the fuck out, right? Yeah. Let's go do something, right? The therapist in me is going to say, what in you is comfortable with that? You're coming to me and you're telling me about it, but what in you is comfortable being in that? Because that should be, if you're telling me it's a problem, then you should have already told me the solution, right? That's like me going to a restaurant, right? I go to a Chinese food restaurant, and every week they poison me. 
And I go in every week, and I'm like, but the fucking crab ragoon are crazy. You're going to be like, <laughs> you're like, all right, man. Like, you know, you got food poisoned every fucking week. Like, ah, uh, which, you know, I got a theory about that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, shit, let's hear the food poisoning theory. <laughs> so, I, I, this is me tested by me and my wife. But I want you guys to think about it. The shittier the service you get in a Chinese food place, the better the food. You know what? Yeah. That, that's a that's a good point. The shittier, like if yeah. you think about the shit, like I'm talking about, they're damn near ignoring you. They don't yeah. care. The yeah. food is incredible, though, right? Yep. But my, what, my glass has been empty for like yeah. ten minutes, <laughs> and I need something to wash this fried fried food down. Absolutely. And they're fucking telling like, oh, I don't give a fuck. You gotta you gotta interrupt them to help you. Hey, yeah. can I? And they're like, but the food is incredible, right? Yeah. Like I've never, no matter what state I'm in, no matter if the if the service is that bad, and it, just Chinese food, the food is incredible. The food is fucking incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you ain't got time for your problems. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and you just feel bad. Like, yeah. Hey, hey can, I, can I get a water? They rush you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, hey, man, I, yeah. got, I got plates to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's good hearing. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'm sure you said somewhere in there, but I kind of lost it. So what made, what got you to make the shift from firefighter to therapist? So interesting story. I was already in mental health before I became a firefighter. Okay. I was working in local hospitals, doing different things. I was doing, um, they call it counseling at that point. And I was doing different things with kids when I became a firefighter. Uh, I actually became a firefighter right after I got out of chemotherapy for the, like, I, uh, and my boy Brandon, why does he know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My boy Brandon asked me to take him to a, a, um, a open house at this department, but I think he was drunk. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, of course I'm taking you to the open house. Right. Cause you, you sound ridiculous. So I ended up taking him there and he's totally fucking ridiculous. He doesn't get the job. I'm sitting back. They say, Hey, are you gonna put an application? Right. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm in mental health. I don't really, you know, want to do anything like, I'm like, go ahead and put an application. I didn't know anything about firefighting at all. So I put the application in and they called me back. So throughout six months of, this is back when, well before the times now, but this is back when hundreds and hundreds of people were going for jobs. So yeah. I think that year was like five, 600 people. They mm-hmm. chose 10 of us. All I did in every interview is say simply, I don't know anything about firefighting, but I can tell you who I am. I didn't know that that, I didn't know, I didn't expect to get the job because I'm just like, ain't no way you guys are going to take somebody. Else. I didn't understand that firefighters are like, we can teach you the skills. Can we fucking sit next to you? Yep. Right? Can we enjoy the game? Can, can I trust you? So I inadvertently beat out all these people that I never thought I would. Right? I still get my friendship because he never made it. Right? <laughs> piece of shit. Like, you didn't make it. Right? So I paused my mental health career to become a firefighter because I didn't want to do anything I wasn't proficient at. So I stopped everything that I was doing and I, you know, went through the academy, firefighter one and two, and I spent a couple of years just getting really good at what I did, right? Making all types of mistakes and having people, you know, there to teach me about being a firefighter, right? Loved it. At about the four-year mark in my career, uh, I wanted to go back and finish my mental health, right? So I went back and enrolled into my master program and I got my master's degree at the fire table. In between calls, I wrote my, my papers, 
um, I had to do with our with my particular degree. You have to do practicums. You have to go get free therapy and different. So I was working our fire shift and a free job with a wife and two kids. So some days I was just like some days I wouldn't see my family for damn near a week because I'm off shift, but I'm working in a rehab and I'm doing all this. And then mm-hmm. I'm in class and all that. Mm. So I end up getting that and uh, then going back into saying, OK, because I was going to work with the military again. You know, I, I I thought about it, thought about it. Part of the reason why I'm thankful that I did not not just that I ended up getting to do what I dreamed to do anyway at that point, but it was. Being former military, you know, I knew that they would never allow me to be me in that environment. Like I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. So um, it was funny being a firefighter and having a mental health background because I'm like looking around the table like none of you know you're traumatized. Like, really? <laughs> like, no, nobody fucking knows. Like, we're really going to argue about who didn't put it on station dues. And we just ran this call with this fucking kid that died. Like, we're really going to do that. Yeah. Like, we're, we're really going to argue about whose turn it is to cook. But, like, it, it was it was crazy to me. So I would start debriefing with my friends in different ways. Like, you know, I was the guy, you know, doing unsolicited therapy. You know, I'm driving a bus with the manic, and I'm like, hey, man, what was that call like? You know, and, and that's how it was. I would pull my captain into it. I would pull my crew into it, you know, because I wanted people to be able to express. But I was shocked. And remind you, I had no fire experience. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm coming to an environment where these guys deal with death all the time. They're going to know how to grieve. They're, guys are no shit. No. No, that's, I mean, we're not taught that. Like you, you talked about. I mean, that is something that we are taught the skills to do the physical part of the job. But as far as dealing with death, you know, losing friends, anything like that, there's there's no training for that. There's no hey, these are the steps you need to take, or these are the people you can call, at least not whenever I came on. Now now it's a little bit different. They're getting better. You know, different but, departments have different... They're trying to get proactive, but I'm looking at it from the standpoint of, so you're teaching me the the this sequence of events. You're telling me that at one point, we put beards in our mouth to filter out smoke, to now we're running around with scuba devices, but in that same span, no one's talked about how to fucking process a call. No one's thought it's okay to talk about grief. You're having all this law. Like, it was such a weird thing that as a mental health professional at the time, I'm like, this got to be a joke. Like, someone must be playing. Like, I spent, like, about a half a year thinking they were just hiding it. Fucking with you. Right, because we fuck with you. So I'm like, oh, everybody just pretended. That they don't ever talk about mental health at all and do all that. Yeah. And I realized, no, they don't. Like, you're not fucking with me. Like, you just put, you know, you just put a, a bunch of shit on my locker to fuck with me, right? Mm-hmm. You're running in the shower, washing my back, you know, while I'm there. That's fucking with me. Yeah. This, this mental health shit, you guys aren't talking about at all. Yeah. At all. And that's why part of my journey, part of my goal was always to treat firefighters because I'm like, I know that it has changed. I know that these things aren't being talked about, but I also know that people are still suffering every day. I know that people, you know, don't understand in quote unquote the regular world, but most of them aren't going to have to do, you know, um, they say big T traumas, not the little T, but they say big T trauma stuff that we would all point and say that's traumatic death and all that stuff. They say most people within their lifetime are going to probably have about seven, seven to 10 things that they look at as truly losses, loss of kid, loss of parent and all that. Right. Yeah. Right. Think about what six months of firefighting is going to do, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, especially depending yeah. on the department. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Shoot, they, they could be two weeks. Exactly. So it's like, and that's not counting your own personal life that you're going to grab. Yeah. So it's like going back to that number. It's like there's a reason why you're on your third wife because you're still at a fucking seven. You you still you still haven't learned how to get back, so you keep meeting people that are adjusting to you at a seven. But at some point, that falls apart as well. You're not supposed to be. We're not designed for it. Yeah, we're truly not. As much as people like to say, "Oh, we're tough and all that stuff," humanity actually isn't designed for the things that we think it is. Right? Mm-hmm. There's this uh, there's this uh force. I can't believe I forgot the name of it. It'll come to me later. But uh, they were doing some forensic uh Civil War forensic examinations, and they found all of these like uh pellets in the treetops and stuff. Right, it's supposed to be this war, and it was this war where there was limit, like limited casualties. Mm-hmm. They were like, "This is supposed to be a big engagement," so they went back and did this forensic work, and they found that, like, they said some crazy number, like seven out of ten people just shot in the air, like they did not want to fire at somebody, so they were just shooting in the air or whatever. Because mm-hmm. it's hard as hell to do the things that go and get. Like, we're not as designed for that as we think. You know, yeah. this is why most people can be fine as long as they don't see it in person. They don't do like it. It's not to sound callous or anything like that, but if I'm running a call and there's a 96-year-old, right, my mindset, my morality is, man, that sucks, but they lived long. Hopefully it was a good life, right? A baby. Totally different story. It's it's too hard. Like, because that baby is nothing but innocence and potential. Oh, yeah. I don't look at that baby and say, you're going to be a molester. You're going to, like, none of that. I look at that baby as the purest form, and it hurts because I'm like, what could you have accomplished in this life? Yeah. What could you have done? Well, if no one's teaching me how to deal with that, then one of those in my lifetime could hurt me. What about 10, 20, 30, 40? You got medics in our in our region that have lost two to three times as many babies they helped deliver. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I qualify for that number. I'm not a medic. So you don't even have the balance of, well, at least I'm bringing life, I'm help. It's it's not like that. And that's where people start to harden, right? A, a little known secret about the fire department, even just any any type of first responder world is that because we harden when we're doing it, we end up not liking the very people we put our lives on the line for, not because we don't connect, but because it's literally you are a potential trauma for me. I just say, oh, man, why are the tones going off? Fuck it, I don't want to run a call. But underneath that is, I don't know what this is about to be. I don't know if I'm going to have to watch a kid die in front of me that's the same fucking age as my son and have to deal with that. I don't know. Like, there's more to it than I just don't want to run the call. You don't put too much time, energy, and training into it. If you didn't want to run the calls, you wouldn't have made it this far. But as you start to get callous, as you start to hurt more, that call represents pain and when no one sat there and talked to you about it, right? When no one sat there and said it, it's like you look at the training counters, like holes tests and all this shit. Nothing mental health. Yeah. N- nothing at all. No, I mean you you see it probably on a if if your station has a a fucking you know a billboard where you can just clip it up there and you know yeah. see like an EAP program or whatever. But it's not it's not discussed. It's just up there, and if you just happen to glance at it, then yeah. that's about it. That's the most you see. Yeah. It's not a – that's a good point that it probably should be a, like a – train. put it in training cycle just like 
hose testing yeah. or anything else. I mean, what would it hurt? You're going to have people grumble, but guess what? Firefighters are professional complainers. Like, like, yeah. Like, I did some training for a local department, and people were complaining because they had to come to the training, but they would have been complaining if they didn't give them the training. They would have complained if they had to run. I, I, I addressed the crowd, and I said, you're mad that you're just sitting in a different place right now. All you would have been doing is sitting. You're not even yep. doing anything physical. <laughs> Yeah. You're not even doing anything physical. You're just angry that you have to sit somewhere else. Yeah. That's ridiculous. I've been at that station. Right. That's where I want to sit. Yeah. I have a chair there right. that is mine. Everybody knows it's my right. chair. Exactly. Yeah. And they know not to mess with me whenever I'm sitting in it. Well, why are they not messing with you when you're, when you're sitting in it? I would run into people, you know, that when I was a firefighter that were traumatized that people had just said, oh, they're cranky. And when I would do a little little digging, I would find out that these people used to be the funnest people in the world hanging out. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you don't just turn into a dick. Like, like there's something else going on. Yeah. Like, this person used to be the life of the party, and now they're the mean. There's something going on. That's not how psychological change happens. Oh, yeah. I mean, shoot. I mean, even when I was I was uh, volunteering, there's, I mean, there was one individual. Now, this was a station that, um, eight guys per shift at right. one station. And, I mean, but one individual depending on his mood would would just would, that's how the day went yep you know if if he was in a cheerful mood hey we're going to have a good day if he comes in with a with a, a frown which was probably 85% of the time we're like let's <laughs> avoid him like let's hope he goes back in the back room and stays there and that's yeah i mean i think everybody's got those stories though yeah. because i mean i can point to whenever i got on i know if i'm going to this station with this captain it's going to be a good day. If I go to this station with this captain, hey, it could be a good day. It might not be. Yeah. And it's it's probably not going to be, but it could be. So, and it but just. But that's when you think about, like, I mean, you know, sometimes you just, I, you know, I haven't known this individual as, as long as others, but it's like, how was he, you know, 15 years ago? What, what, yeah, yeah. what changed? We'll say, I mean, and you could probably speak to it better than I can, but I mean. I have my own opinions of it's a cumulative effect is what it seems to be. It doesn't seem to be like one call or one thing. It's just everything that doesn't get dealt with. It's, it depends, right? You know, I definitely agree that there is a cumulative effect to it, that, that it's about how that person's interpreting it. But there are some things that rock us because we, you know, I tell people all the time, one raindrop can bust a dam if it's the last one, Right. That's the one that does it. But some of us are getting a deluge in a way that we didn't expect. And some of us get it from so many different areas that our ways of coping are to just keep pushing through, but you're going down, right? And when you get down, you start to have thoughts that you wouldn't have before because those thoughts make sense. You know, um, one of my, you know, I can speak to it because, you know, his family, you know, he was, he was there. One of my, one of my former patients, you know, had died last year, committed suicide, Chad. Uh, very, very good dude. Uh, uh, love Chad. He was, you know, like most of my patients, hard-headed, stubborn, you know, thought he knew everything. Fucking idiot, right? Ugh, loved him to death. I spoke at his funeral. His family wanted me to speak at his funeral. And I was trying to explain to the crowd, I love his family because they did two things that I thought were super important. Chad was a huge advocate for mental health, peer support, you know, my programs, like anything, trying to get people help. And the second is they did not make his death hush-hush. 
lot of times when people die for suicide, mental health reasons, people just, oh, well, let's not talk about it. You know, they died suddenly. No, his family was like, we want you to get up and speak about this. And I told them, what well, can I teach? And she said, do what Chad will want you to do. So I got up there and I told people specifically what happens for a lot of people who are experiencing intense trauma, depression, just life, just kicking your ass is you start to change how you interpret that, right? So let's say that life is a mountain. And at the top of the mountain, it's everything that you want. Uh, Food, sex, career, whatever you want is up there. Most people get up that mountain and get to the top. Yay, I got it, right? People that are traumatized, what they do is they work their way up to the mountain, they grab it, I got it, then they go to sleep. When they wake up, they're like, fuck, I'm at the bottom of the mountain. All right, let me get up there. They do it, they grab it again. Go to sleep, wake up, bottom of the mountain again. At some point, what happens is they become tired. It's not that they don't want what's up top. They're tired of the journey. So they start making themselves comfortable at the bottom. They start doing things at the bottom that's not normal. But at the bottom, it makes sense. Some people are so comfortable at the bottom, they got a sofa, a big screen TV, they're down there. Now what happens for people at the bottom is you're going to have somebody hiring you closer to the top of the mountain and they're going to say shit to you that you that they think makes sense. So a close to the top of the mountain person is going to say something to you like, hey, you're in a bad mood. You need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You need to go to a movie. You need to, And it's like, okay, because for them, that brings them right there. They're great. But if I'm at the bottom, that just brought me right here. It did not actually move anything. So a lot of times when people are that tired, people look at it as a failing. It's like, no, these are some of the strongest people you know because you don't know how many times they fucking went up to the top of the mountain. Some of us catch people on those days and we're like, man, why can't you be like that all the time? We're thinking that in our head. Guess what? That was the top of the mountain day. The bottom of the mountain is a whole different thing. And some of you don't realize that you had helped people live a lot longer than they ever would by being that handhold that got them to the top sometimes. But ultimately, it's still a choice. That's why when I created my programs, even the one that I run now, Value, like that's why I'm so specific about skills because I want you to understand what's actually going on. Anybody that's ever been in treatment with me, no one's going to walk away saying they didn't learn something. It's going to be almost academic. I'm going to teach you things that you didn't know so that you can use them in your life so that you can become better. I can't fix your life because I don't believe people are broken. So I can't fix you. People need to be healed. If something's broken, that means it cannot serve its purpose. If we broke this table, then that means you can't put anything on it. People always can serve their purpose. So they're not broken. They just need to be healed. But when people look at themselves, they say, well, I'm in this spot. I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel like everything's falling apart. I feel like, and it's like, well, yeah, because you forgot how to have hope. You forgot how to have vulnerability. You forgot that you've been through more shit than most people would ever know. It hasn't broken you. You have more experience with pain than anybody. So tell me when it's going to break you. I don't know, David. I've been through 50 things. Then 51 is the fucking, you think that's going to be the thing to break you? You're already tested. Sometimes, and I learned this lesson, Jeremy, when you asked me earlier, when I figured out kind of what, I had had this uh, misconception about myself. I thought that for whatever reason, I went through all this pain and pressure like I was being shaped. Like a sword. Like I'm getting. Being forged. Right. Like I'm like, I'm being forged. Like I'm a sword. I'm not a sword. That's not my point in life because at some point a sword 
stops getting hit with shit. It's then utilized utility, right? I realized late in life that I'm a hammer. My whole life is going to be getting hit or hitting something because I exist to forge others. And some of us don't realize we're hammers. We're like, why does shit keep happening? Because that's that's what happens. And if you look at any blacksmith out of everything in that fucking shop, I'll tell you what he takes care of the most. That hammer. Everything else is ore. He can smelt it, melt it down, do all that. That hammer is his most important tool. So if God made me a hammer, there's a reason for it. I stopped getting mad that shit kept happening to me. I can look at my life from childhood, homelessness, all that shit, to Marine Corps, the sh deployed, all that shit. I can look at cancer, having damn stage three cancer. Me and my wife went through damn near 10 miscarriages trying to have children. Losing children. We did in vitro. We did everything. I can look at all that. I know for a fact that I'm a hammer because I learned to enjoy being a father, whether it was fucking two weeks or two months. I learned that I would enjoy that feeling. Now, me and my wife went from miscarriages to her tubes tied. I got four children now. But here's why I have four children. Because I didn't stop. If I stop at the third miscarriage, the fourth miscarriage, I never see my babies. <clears throat> I never get there. Some of you, even some of you that are listening, this ain't the time to stop. This ain't the time to stop. Like, you are going to go through stuff. Quit being surprised by it. If you ain't had an easy life, stop being fucking surprised. Yeah. Stop being surprised because that surprise is going to hurt you. You're always going to feel like, well, you know, I can't believe something's happening. You got to realize what type of tool you really are, right? In the military, Jeremy, you know too, like in the military, you may have somebody who, Rises through the ranks very quick. Let's give them an arbitrary. Let's say they're E8, right? And they hit every damn level. Very meritorious, promoted. They get up there and they're kicking ass. And they're young and they're E8s. Stacked. All that shit. Now you got somebody more along my lines, right? Fucking up, getting NJP. They're fighting, <laughs> right? They make it up there, but they done had hella fucking stairs to get through. And they done fucked up, got busted out. But they finally get up to E8. So now you got... Golden boy who did everything right, kicked ass meritorious, and you got fucking guy who didn't give up. Who do you guys have inherently more respect for? The guy that kept working yeah. as harder than Why? because he's got that experience. I mean, he's got the experience, and he's he's. Uh, I know that's the guy that's not going to turn around and run. Ex so yeah. what? Ha both of you are spot on. The reason why we hold this guy that went through so much in a, a larger level of esteem, we're not shitting on a guy that did everything right. That's impressive. But when we're looking at what this guy is, we understand something. He went the path of redemption. The path of redemption ain't easy for people. It's a lot of people that give up. So when you're on the path of redemption, you have to accept that and be like, man, there's going to be some shit that happens to me. You're going to be envious of the person that gets it across. Oh, yeah. You're going to look over and be like, oh, my God, man. Like, fuck, that's incredible. But when you're a path of redemption person, you have to accept that that's the road. That's the road. That's where my growth is. And that's also where I learn the most about myself. You're also going to appreciate it more because what it took you to get to that level, you know. Uh, just yeah. that amount of hard work and 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 uh, struggles will just make you appreciate it just so much more, willing to help others. Well, and that's the and I've talked about it a lot and shifting your perspective. You know, it's it's huge. It's Steam probably shifting is incredibly yeah. Good. I mean, because that allows you to take a certain situation or whatever and look at it through a different lens, and that has been huge for me. Because, yeah, it, it'd be easier for me to go sit in the fucking angry corner 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't do that. It's a skill. You know, it's a skill. Once again, the reason why I teach what I teach is because I can I can validate everything I teach somebody because I use it. I don't need anybody to tell me it works. Or like I use it and being able to shift your schema, being able to change your perspective teaches you how to navigate yourself and your environment. Right. It's like if you're working out, right, you're working out. And let's say that, you know, somebody's spotting you. Anybody that's ever worked out and had had a good spotter, a good spotter is actually not going to help you that much, right? Like, a good spotter will put fingertips on it, right? Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, just those fingertips is enough for you to be like, ah! Right? Because your perspective is, you know what? I can push as much as I can because he's there, he's going to help. That same weight without those fingertips, you can't lift it all. Yeah, That's a psychological trick. Like, your brain is literally saying, well, you know what? It's too heavy. And some people just say, well, I'm not going to do it. That's why it's okay to have people in your life sometimes to help, fingertip, but you don't want somebody carrying a bar. You never feel confident when someone carries the bar, right? You feel cheap even counting the reps. Yeah. Because you're like, I know I really didn't do that, right? You're helping mm-hmm. me too much, right? And also, get your dick off my head. You're too close. Right? <laughs> right? That's, the other, that's yeah. the other part. I definitely prefer the two-spotter <laughs> rule of guys on the ends. Got to straddle your face. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not like, doing yeah, that. I'm good, man. Yeah, right? I, I read a story uh, from one of Forrest Griffin's books oh, that, that just reminded me. He's in there, and they're doing some kind of bench press, personal max or something like that and the dude that was spotting him had a big old dip in his mouth and he's like fucking do it fucking do it and dip just runs out all uh, in his eye and he's like uh, he's like you better push it up i ain't yeah, helping yeah, you yeah, yeah. yeah you got to at that point right like, <laughs> uh, yeah. jesus yeah i i can't even imagine oh I, dude i throw up i, I throw yeah. up <laughs> Uh, you'd probably have to pull that thing off my chest and just yeah oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah and stop spitting in EMS gloves. I'm just gonna oh, throw God, that out there. Please, I freaking I... oh got in the rig one morning six fifteen six thirty caught a call set of EMS gloves sitting up there grabbed them. Ah uh... yeah gross oh yeah it was bad I've, i was I, know, I know some guys that, that spit their e, the ems gloves but they it they leave with them after oh yeah every no call. no these were <laughs> and you would have thought it would have ran out because it wasn't tied up it was just oh, sitting damn oh yeah. my god yeah Ugh. It, it was bad <laughs> Ugh. <I'm> just, uh. <laughs> the more you think about it the worse it is yeah no, <laughs> it is Ugh. Yeah, and then you have to run the call like that. Oh, dude, yeah. I, I it'd be hard for me to contain myself during that entire call because I'm just like, well, I, yeah, I didn't handle it well, and uh, <laughs> I had like maybe a year and a half, two years on the job at the time. So yeah, whenever we came back to the state, I was ready to fight, and yeah, guy yeah. was already gone. Yeah, I, 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 so. that whole call, I would have been like. Can I smell it? Can yeah. I smell it? Like, just trying to make sure that someone else can't smell it from me. I'm like, all right, all right, we're good, we're good. Well, it's just, it's, it's super, super interesting how particular you'll be about certain things, but you're still in very nasty environments grabbing stuff. But it's just certain oh, yeah. things where you're like, ah, I can't do it. But, you know, I used to work with a guy who, uh, he, 
he was very sensitive to like smell and stuff like that. He would never throw up, but he would just retch. So like he's and he's still working. It was like <laughs> he's about to, he would never blow, but he's like, like oh, and I'm like stop doing it because I can feel mine coming up. Right, it's about to get crazy in here. Like we all about to be throwing up. Oh man, yeah, yeah. I- for me, I'm more of a – vomit is really what gets me the most. So I, I had one patient I, throw up on me. Digested and, blood is the only thing that really, like, that – Dude, the GI bleed yeah. is the worst. Nelson yeah. Nelson puked on a GI bleed. Yeah. Oh, dude. The GI bleed, uh, uh, like, I, it's no smell uh, quite like that, right? I, yeah, I got I got thrown up on, and, dude, I was – after they – like, they're, like, loading them up in the, in the ambulance. I'm over, uh, over by the tree, like, whoa. Uh, like didn't yeah. didn't throw up, but man, I was freaking close. I drenched my arm. See, for me, it's it's shit. Like yeah, the GI bleed, I mean, it stinks and stuff, but it doesn't like mess with. But shit, no, I don't do it. <laughs> and had a call at a nursing home. This dude been sitting in his own shit for a couple of days uh, over the weekend. We go to you know pick him up. We put him on the tarp, and he rolls over and grabs me right here on my shirt. Shit all over his hands. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's different. Like yeah, yeah. that yeah. that that yeah. that, uh, that, would, that, was, that definitely would have got yeah. me. Um, yeah, I, I, just, I was uh, dude. There's no way that shirt's coming off that way. I freaking take some trauma shears and cut down the middle. Dude, I, the, those the, are done. The worst call with like smell and thing I ever went on was we had a uh, a bariatric patient that uh, diabetic that went in diabetic coma and it fell out the bed. Right, so we get called on it. We yeah. go there. I'm I'm the rook, right? I'm oh, low so, man on total post. Yeah. So they're like, hey, get in there and help her get back up on the bed or whatever, right? So I'm trying to help her and I can't maneuver, right? So the cap's like, you need to get between the legs and you know, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll help, right? She 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 comes to and clamps me between her oh, legs. No. And I'm completely drenched by I have no <laughs> I have I can't describe what was so I'm I'm, st- I'm still I'm still professional I'm in it but inside I'm screaming like I'm like you can't tell me it hasn't eaten through my shirt and it's in my skin right so of course we end up we end up getting transported right I'm riding back I'm backwards and all they keep talking about is man it fucking smells like they, they're just laying in, like what is that sm-? I'm like fuck you guys like we did a we did a funeral for it. we burnt fucking the shirt like I think I took like four showers and it was still oh, like dude. yeah that's one of those I'm like oh my god like to this day I'm like I don't even want to imagine what it was but it was it was like it was like I had got dropped in Costa Rica jungle <laughs> like on a balmy day like oh so it oh, was it was liquid like uh yeah oh, yeah goodness <laughs> yeah and that's every day <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean thankfully not every day but you know often enough i oh, mean this is this has been fun i gotta come back and uh <laughs> do some time with you guys this is i like yeah. i like your environment man you know it's very yeah. have you been getting a lot of good feedback from it uh yeah from people that will actually talk about it, yeah. Everybody's well, been pretty positive. Well, so. remember, there's a lot of people that's watching that ain't saying shit. Yeah. yeah. Right? I'm the guy that gets a lot of, hey, I'm not told. I've People tell me stuff that other people don't know. You know, so I, I realize that a lot, pe- a lot of people are still afraid to say certain things, yeah. you know, for various reasons, yeah. right? So, some, some places aren't receptive to the message you know for different reasons but yeah. you don't understand how far your touch can go because 
you don't know once again that mountain this may be something that helps somebody reach that top that Absolutely. day where they didn't even expect to well and that's why we started the whole thing yeah smart. and we've said it you know if even one person will see something that we do on here somebody that we talk to has something that just touches them and either you know pulls them out of wherever they're at or you know they go get help or whatever right then it's worth it yeah so yeah i agree and i definitely agree yeah i enjoy sitting here and talking to people and yeah it's it's you know you know and that and what what we you know what you talked about earlier is you know if we can get that message out there and then you know if we can try and push to this being like a once a year or quarterly kind of thing like a quarterly mental health kind of situation where you know your shifts get together and kind of just you know talk things out kind of work work on working on themselves and 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 how how to fix what's bothering them you know so we can avoid those those that one guy that comes in on a, on a on a shitty day and that's that's the whole right. that's the that's what right. we're going to deal with today you know so it's just something to be aware of and something to really look at and try and try and fix for the future of the departments well and and the the thing that's particularly difficult and interesting about what you guys do is no matter how much pain you've been through no matter how much you see your worst call may be in front of you not mm-hmm. behind you yeah and that's what always strikes me with you know people not wanting to be proactive is we don't know what's going to happen next we don't you know and it's you know i'm in the fight my family's made sacrifices you know i am vested in this thing for personal reasons as well as professional ones. But as many people that's in it, I'm never going to push away. You know, I'm never going to be like, I have to be the only person. Like there's so many people that can do so many different things. And we all need to lift this up because, you know, my hope is in 20 years, what you're talking about is commonplace that they're not thinking about it. it anything. It's not a surprise to be like, Oh man, you know, it's going to be the normal complaint. Oh man, we got fucking mental health training, you know, this, the yeah. normal complaints, but it's a known versus, you know what it is. You know, there's not many people that on my side that may have success working with you guys for various reasons, but it's also a limit on what you guys can do at your level too. So we both kind of got to meet, right? You know, you got to lift up. I got to, and we got to meet there. You know, I'm a unicorn in that sense because I've had so many different lives and I've done that. And honestly, the people that I treat are like me so I can talk to them and they understand, you know, you're not going to come to me and I have to have to listen to you explain the job. I got that part, right? My job is explain. You're an expert on yourself. I'm an expert on all the other shit you don't know. So let's start there. Let's start with what you don't know. Because if you come to me and you're saying shit's fucked up, I mean, no shit. You're talking to therapists. Like, like, (laughs) like surprise. Right. If I treated happy people, I'd probably fucking be, you know, like, (laughs) like, no, like I get that. But now it's like, well, what do you do? What's in the toolbox? What's going on? How does this look? So every program I've designed, everything that I've done, there's times even where, you know, you know, my wife just told me on this, like I'll use my Facebook page because it's a message that I want to give out to somebody and you know, little classes and things like that. Like everything doesn't have to be about like who, like sometimes it's just, you don't know when someone's going to hear this and need it. Yeah. 
you know, and that's why yeah. I, I felt, you know, honored, like, hey, man, yeah, I'll get down, definitely, you know. Of course, it takes a little bit to work right. the schedule and all yeah. that, but no, man, I'm, I was definitely happy to be, you know, invited here because yeah. I think it's important. Everybody has to pull a little bit. Yeah. Well, and like I said, we're super appreciative that you yeah. had the time to come up, so, and it was great, yeah. so. I, I hope you hope you guys enjoyed it, man. Like I said, you know, we can, I can do it again. It's not, you know. Absolutely. There, there's a, you know me, there's a million I, fucking things yeah. I can talk Well, about. I would like to get you back with the other two guys okay i yeah, think we'll that would that would be great yeah so. we'll, we'll definitely set it up yeah cool. yeah and that one you know especially since we did this one, we could talk about you know the entry stuff is kind of we could get into some certain things so yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. perfect man. cool yeah. all right man well thanks for coming you got any closing thoughts um i mean i guess for anyone that may listen to this you know what i would say is please in whatever way Lean into your vulnerabilities a bit. You know, a lot of strong people have done things that they can't take back. Vulnerable people ask for help, and that's smart, right? You know, there's never a reason for you to do something alone. You know, we live in a world where there's no such thing as self-made. I make a company right now, and I, I have a product. I have to put that product on roads that are serviced and created by other people. Like, there's like everybody has to be linked in some way, and... If you are in the first responder world, if you're a veteran, if you're all that, one of the things that attracted us to that was brotherhood, right? Mm -hmm. Checking on your brother, doing those things. Those things are important, but also being a leader, showing it just as much. Some of you will crawl through glass to help somebody, but won't pick up a fucking phone to say you need help. That's incongruent. You need to be able to do both. That's how you show somebody that you have power, is that I can help, give, and take. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for stopping by and watching like we end every episode. If you are struggling, reach out. And if you know somebody that's struggling, reach out. Let them know you care. Let them know there are resources out there. So take care of yourself. We'll see you next time.